Before we get started, I want to talk about sponsors that help make this show possible. I've partnered with swimming companies that can serve our international audience. Looking to host your first swim meet or replacing an old timing system? Run a swim meet with ease from your laptop using superior swim timing. You can use superior swim timing with your existing equipment, or they can provide you with a complete timing solution, including deck harnesses, buttons, and starter. SST is fully compatible with HiTech and Team Unify, as well as Colorado, Dactronics, and Amiga touchpads. Go to superiorswimtiming.com to learn more and be sure to tell them I sent you. One of the best ways to build power in the pool is by using a tower. I got introduced to Chuck Destro. Because of the way Chuck designed them, they can break down and ship in a much smaller box so they can ship anywhere in the world for a reasonable price. Use code BRETT at checkout and save $150 on a double swim tower. That means if you order two, you can save $300. Order four, save $600. Go to destromachines.com to get your team stronger in the water today. I'm giving away not one, but two swim nerd pace clocks on the first night of US Olympic trials. Find the link in the show notes to enter. All right, Alex Perry, welcome to Inside with Brett Hawk. How are you doing? Good, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now, now listen, where are you coming from? Uh, so I am in my little writer's office on uh, a river in Hampshire in southern England, about an hour outside London, basically. That's where I'm based. Beautiful, beautiful. Mate, now listen, for those that don't know you, um, I, I didn't know you until this morning, uh, informally. <laughs> But I, but I read your article um, in Outside Magazine, which I found to be quite fascinating, really. Um, it was called the, the Plot to Kill the Olympics. That's what you titled it. Um, and, it and it's just a, a real fascinating piece on um, the Olympics, uh, the ISL, the swimming in general. And look, I'm not a journalist, and, and you are, so I don't want to um, you know, embarrass you in any way. But, uh, but I'm just a fascinated swim fan, and that's why I have this podcast, is you know, tell some swimming stories. And this was a, certainly a fascinating swimming story. So can you give us a little bit of background on it? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a story that I've been following for about three years. Uh, weirdly, picked it up at the, I picked up my first lead on Constantine Grigorishin, the sort of protagonist at the, uh, at the school gates of my middle daughter's school. Oh, wow. uh, there, was a, there was a fellow parent who happened to be working in sports PR who just said, I asked her what she was doing. She said, I'm, uh, I'm working for this strange Ukrainian billionaire who's trying to reinvent swimming through sex. I think she actually got the sex bit wrong. <laughs> but, but anyway, I said, really? Can I have his number? <laughs> and, um, and I went to meet Constantine at his uh, palatial apartment in central London. And I went there to talk about someone setting up a you know, a new global sports tournament, which doesn't happen very often. And all he talked about was uh, Putin and uh, Russian security services and uh, his wife and kids being kidnapped and escaping from Russia. And, you know, the, the, we, we had a talk for about two hours and, and 
I just came away thinking, oh, I, I think there's something here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I've now had, uh, I think at my last count, I've had 35 interviews with Constantine, and, and, it, and it's taken literally that long to download his story. And I, and I you know, I wouldn't claim that I'm there yet, to be honest. It's, it's just so many twists and turns as you as you, you gather if you read the piece. But but the essence is, here is a man who um, uh, was a elite level scientist in the Soviet Union. Soviet Union collapses. He applies the scientific method to business. He's extremely successful, um, makes only up to six billion. He doesn't play it politically carefully. In fact, if anybody asks him a question, he's absolutely blunt and outspoken about the corruption all around him. That earns him enemies in Ukraine. He has to leave Ukraine. He moves to Moscow. That earns him enemies in Moscow. The security services come for his family. He has to leave Moscow. He leaves behind close to a billion dollars. Uh, he decides to reinvent himself because he's ashamed of the way his business has endangered his family. And he needs a new plan, basically. So his eldest son, Ivan, is, a, is a, at the stage a 15-year-old backstroker, possibly on his way to the Olympics. Constantine is really into the Olympics. He has a swim club. And he just starts puzzling out why swimmers are so poor. That's his sort of founding scientific question. You know, like, like, get to the bottom of this problem. Why are all these swimmers in my swim club? Why have not one of them got a penny? And why is it a constant charitable operation for me to even get them to a meet? And um, after sort of a year or so of research, he decides the problem is the Olympics. Uh, the Olympics professionalized in the 70s and 80s for the officials, for the bureaucrats right. who became extremely rich. They did not professionalize for the athletes, unlike every single other sport. And that simple act of partition, kind of financial partition, um, has only mushroomed into this giant inequality where the Olympics are pulling in six billion at, at, at um, every four years, but paying the workforce not a penny. And so Cosentine's solution to this is a commercial tournament which splits half the money with the athletes and, um, uh, and also addresses issues like doping. I mean, there's a fairly simple issue to the doping uh question which is ban anyone who dopes boom it's done mm -hmm. you know and and all the the uh the back and forth we've had with so many athletes are they in are they out are they suspended are they going to get retested just get rid of all that stuff you know you dope you're out um and he like so you know great idea for a new tournament and he wants to build it into a show which he thinks will you know create an audience uh, but a lot of the story, uh, I don't want to spoil all of it, is is about the people who then try and stop Constantine from doing that and why exactly they might be doing that. And not to give everything away, but the great irony is that the very people that he escaped from Russia to get away from are the very same people trying to stop him set up a swim tournament. 
Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt at all, because he's doing it successfully at the moment. And there's got to be a lot of uh, pissed off people, I'd imagine. But um, look, I'm I'm kind of upset with Constantine a little bit myself because I'm I I was an Olympic athlete in in 2000 2004 and and he decided to bring this in after I, I had quit swimming. So I'm, I'm I was one of those poor broke swimmers who were uh, at the at the uh, knees of the of the um, Olympic committee. You know, uh, I I was struggling. You know, I was one of the best athletes in the world, one of the fastest swimmers in the world, and I had no money at all. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I know exactly where he was well, coming from in terms of the idea. Well, what's, what's kind of fun is, is that Constantine in the management structure and the, you know, the general managers and the teams, figures like Matt Biondi running the Alliance, which is kind of a swimmers union and, and other people around. There's actually quite a few ex-swimmers who, who have come back to the sport. And I think they're the easiest to convince of you know, of, of all, like Constantine's had a real mindset battle with current athletes who are so focused on the Olympics. It's very hard to try and sort of shift their perspective and say, um, well, hey, maybe this one tournament that only happens every four years and doesn't pay you any money is kind of strange. You know, <laughs> maybe a much more regular thing would be something like a Premier League, which actually paid you and happened every weekend. That, that's been quite a mindset battle. But what hasn't been a battle at all is getting uh, older swimmers or ex-swimmers who, you know, got to the end of their careers, you know, age late 20s, early 30s, and suddenly thought, wow, now I need to reinvent myself. I haven't actually got any money from that. In fact, I'm probably broker than when I was at college. Yeah. And, and, you know, in months, everyone's forgotten about me. No surprise, because no one who only competes in the Olympics has no public profile apart from two weeks every four years. So, you know, people like Matt Biondi um, just leapt at the chance. Jason Lezak. I mean, these are legendary names in the sport, right? But they were, there's, there's nothing to come. And that's, that's part of what Constantine is trying to build is you don't just flame, you know, have your moment of glory and flame out as an athlete. There is an infrastructure and a club structure um, to absorb people uh for a second career in swimming right uh, much as every you know almost every other sport has but it just doesn't exist in swimming or, or track right well just just so people know i'm going to be um, retweeting this article that that you put out I've, I've already put it out on on twitter and and, I, and i've seen obviously that's where i got it from i saw i saw you put it out so i'll be re-putting this out once we we release this um interview but wh where can people find the article other than just me posting it on twitter it's on it's a uh, outside online.com so it's an outside magazine which is uh has no paywall free to read mm -hmm. um there is the hard copy of the magazine i think that's only on sale in the states um which and that's been there for a couple of months now but it's been online since the middle of well for two or three weeks now it's you know it's it's weird it's um I guess outside is not the place where people go to immediately to look for their swimming news. So it's it's um, it's had some circulation in the general readership, and it's it feels like now it's just beginning to get through to the swimming community. Um, I know all the swimmers that like the the star swimmers who feature in the piece. Um, I think they, most of them read it, and I had some nice comments, um, but. Um, 
Yeah, what, what's interesting to me is actually is is those in the swimming community that do read it are it is as I kind of hoped actually slightly blowing their minds. Yeah. Um, because and and I, and I don't say that to sort of say that the swimming community is full of people who uh, are sort of walking around half asleep, but it is it was three years of serious investigative work to try and uncover and then fact check a lot of this stuff. Um, and it's not exactly on display. Um, and, and most people that I meet in swimming are so focused on the sport that anything outside the pool is a distraction. So you can really hardly blame, particularly the athletes, for, for not knowing about some scandal with the uh, uh, Hungarian uh, you know, federation chair or, or, or whatever. Yeah. But, um, and, and, and I think, you know, I mean, hopefully the article is some sort of public service in that it, it, it's bringing together different strands and, and different stories in swimming and, and putting them together in some kind of coherent fashion that tells what is really actually a pretty shocking story of the sport. Well, mate, the way you had put it, you, you wrote a true story about the Olympics, Russia, billion dollar heist, murder, revolution. And teeny tiny swim trunks. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty interesting description right there. Were you ever fearful for your own safety during this research? Uh, I mean, to be honest, a, a lot of what I do is is organised crime stuff. And um, you know, when I was at Time Magazine before I was freelance, I, 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 when I quit Time, I actually counted up how many wars I'd done for them, and it was over thirty. Basically, I was trying to squeeze them for some cash. <laughs> but I was slightly shocked by how many I'd done. So, I mean, it's not that I don't think about it, but I, I, I'm pretty used to those kind of risks. And, and, and to be honest, in my opinion, and I'll say this up until the moment something does happen to me, they, they tend to be slightly overstated. It's quite a big thing to, to go and whack a journalist. Um, so, um, you know, touching wood, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we certainly hope that that's not the case. But, I mean, you do have a family as well. I mean, do, the, do they, are they fearful when you're digging into things like this? Um, I mean, I guess they knew up front, this is who I am, this is what I do. Um, but they've got to have some trepidation as well, right? <laughs> that would be nice. I mean, I, I don't think they could be less interested. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, where are you going? Where are you going? I'm, I'm, I'm off to Somalia to see some bad men with guns. Okay, have a good time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's kids, right? I mean, they don't care. Um, yeah, it's, and, and, and it's, it is actually what I've always done. So it is just kind of what daddy does. Um, but uh, no, they've never, <laughs> they've never once asked about my safety. <laughs> well, listen. What about Constantine? Because obviously, in in the story, there, there's moments where, um, I, I mean, I'm not going to give it all away either. But there, there's moments where his his life is in jeopardy and his family's life for sure. Yeah. So, did you did you feel that with him as well? Is he fearful of what he's doing? Could could really, um, you know, have an effect on his life? Yeah, I mean, well, I, you know, I described in the piece, there was a moment when he really, when he realised who he was up against, uh, he had a moment. And what was fascinating about that was it was, it came quite early on in our relationship, sort of, um, 
interview four or five, I think. And I left that interview thinking my story's just fallen apart because because Constantine said, I don't really want to talk about this. I don't really want to talk about that. You know, I'm, I'm really quite worried. You know, I say the wrong thing. Um, I'm going to be put firmly in the enemy camp and then these guys can do anything. You know, it was, it was, it felt reasonably sensible for him to be saying that. What was remarkable up until that point was that he, he had no filter. Any question, you know, uh, he would answer. And, and as far as I could tell, I know all my corroboration indicated he was answering very honestly. Um, what was remarkable was that when I went to see him again, sort of two or three weeks later, he's back on his horse again. You know, he's, uh, he's like, sure, I can talk about that. I can talk about anything, you know. And um, the, the, I mean, he said to me, basically, he'd done some research. He'd made some calls to, to Moscow and had been told that he was an economic problem, not a political problem, mm. i.e. there might be court cases, there might be low-level, annoying uh, people coming after him, but we're not talking assassins. Um, I, and, and I think also, I mean, Constantine, is an, he's an... I mean, he refers to himself as arrogant, and I, I think he's being self-deprecating. He, but he is incredibly self-assured because he spends an enormous amount of time thinking and plotting and strategizing. So he's pretty convinced he's right by the time he's executing his plan. And I think he'd done the same here. He'd absorbed all the information and then plotted a way through in which he was fairly confident he was going to be okay. But as I say, by the next time I saw him, uh, you know, his star was undimmed again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every, every interaction I've had with him, he, he seems to be that way too. He doesn't come off as somebody that's, uh, you know, held back by, by anything in particular. He, he's, he seems very happy in life and um, very optimistic, I would, I would say. Um, yeah, and, I think you're right. Very, very visionary right. too, obviously, right? Yeah, I mean, he's a. You're not going to meet anybody like him. He is, you know, unique. Uh, I spent quite a lot of time with his staff and people around him. You know, and the and the, convers the topic of conversation is Constantine. You know, is is everyone's trying to kind of work him out because he's a he's an extremely unusual person, um, and that. And don't forget that he's come to swimming, um, not as an outsider but not as a known quantity. And as a Ukrainian billionaire, which for most people is shorthand for gangster. And he's, you know, and if you go online and, and tap in his name, you'll find a lot of uh, stuff that suggests kind of scurrilous backgrounds and dodgy dealings in Ukraine and Moscow. Most of it, I have to say, is just not true, and I spent I wasted an awful amount of time chasing down a lot of this stuff. Um, but so that means that Constantine had a huge uh, kind of image problem to overcome, convincing swimmers not just to turn away from the Olympics, the world's most prestigious sports tournament, well, not necessarily turn away from it, but widen their focus beyond the Olympics, and then to trust him. Uh, when, 
you know, their first impressions are going to be, this is kind of the guy that my mother warned me about. Um, and he's largely managed to do that by just always playing with a straight bat. And I think the repeat experience that most swimmers who swim for him have had by now, which is meeting him again and again, and he is always available and he will always be talking to you. Um, and they've discovered that he is um, a man of his word who is not uh, fly by night, but in this for the long haul. And if he has any, you know, weird quirks, it's to do with a, an obsession with postmodern philosophy. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's a little bit of an Elon, Elon Musk type, type guy, you know, he's an anomaly. You know, you're, you're, he's out there. You're like, this, this guy's not really human. He's, he's not like us. I, I, I sat in on uh, um, uh, so when the Japanese team arrived in Budapest, you know, newly formed, just arrived, never met Constantine. I don't know how many times these guys have been in in Hungary or even outside Tokyo, but it, the whole thing seemed incredibly fresh. Constantine stood up to welcome them, spent twenty five minutes talking about postmodernism. And left, <laughs> and uh, I, um, I had someone translating for me from the Japanese, and um, I, I asked them to keep translating because I wanted to hear what the coach said after after Constantine had left the room. And the coach said, "Look, I know he looks like a madman, but he's a really <laughs> nice guy, <laughs> and he really likes swimmers." <laughs> yeah, you definitely have to give that interpretation <laughs> for sure. Um, what about the the Olympic side of it? You know, when you're digging into this, what part of the story itself really kind of blew your mind when when you when you found out more and more about that side of um, you know the story? I, I guess what blows my mind the most. I mean, as I say, I've done a fair amount of organised crime, and and what um, the repeat experience of these stories is that it's staring you in the face. This is not, um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's less about, I mean, there is a fair amount of sleuthing to be done and documents to be got. Uh, but to be honest, a lot of the time, that's about proving kind of what you know. Um, but with the Olympics, more than any other story, it's about adjusting your perspective of the Olympics. You know, the Olympics, as we commonly know it, the world's most prestigious sports tournament that you know uh, extends or has a has a legacy extending from ancient Greece, and um, um, is all about fair play and world peace and uh, uh, human excellence, you know, and um, it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> the entire thing is a crock of shit. <laughs> it's, uh, it was invented by uh, a, a man called, you know, uh, Pierre de Coubertin, who, um, who is sort of eulogized by the IOC now as this sort of genius far thinker. Pierre Coubertin, racist, sexist snob who didn't allow working men in his games because uh, he didn't like them, who didn't allow women in because he didn't like them, and only allowed non-Caucasians in so that white people could beat them and prove racial superiority. 
This wow. man, he was a horrible colonialist imperialist who wanted to prove white power through sport. You know, that is not world peace. And, um, and that, his legend has been so fictionalized. And, and from that sort of beginning, you know, and to Coubertin, you know, he, um, he was pretty influential at the beginning. He stepped back for a few years, but he came back specifically to lobby for Hitler to hold the Olympics in Berlin in 1936. Well, that tells you what kind of guy this is. <laughs> so um, from that, you know, great opening lie, um, it has bred a culture of doing something in public while really doing something else in private, to which when, when the commercialization of, of, of sports sort of exploded in the 60s and 70s with the advent of sponsorship and TV, that was, you know, set up to, to create a rip-off. Um, and as I say, the amazing thing about that is it's, it's just all there. In the, in the accounts of the IOC or FINA or, you know, whichever one of these things you want to examine, it takes no time at all to go online, go through their accounts and go, oh, there is literally no part in here where they pay the athletes anything at all. Oh, and they're making seven billion. <laughs> you know, it's, it's in black and white. And um, that's, that's the... As I say, that, that is the repeat experience when you do organized crime. It's right in front of you. It's a business that you know. It's a building that you live in. It's something that you're very familiar with, but you just, you've been convinced of a very different perception of than, than, than actually exists in reality. And, and that's the Olympics, you know? And um, I mean, perhaps Constantine's, you know, Biggest legacy and, and, and organized crime and, and monopoly behavior, very close cousins. You know, organized crime loves a monopoly. And, and funny enough, monopolists often find themselves dealing with organized crime. So I think Constantine's one of his more, um, one, of, one of the biggest legacy he's going to be leaving is that court judgment from San Francisco in which FINA and by extension all Olympic bodies have been ruled to be illegal monopolies. I think, yeah, that, although it's very quiet, that judgment, it can be used by any Olympic athlete now to sue any part of the IOC and the Olympic family for you know, hundreds of millions in, in compensation for lost earnings. Uh, is that a reality though? Is that is that possible to, to sue FINA? If you're an athlete, I mean, so, so FEMA's about to pay out, and the only reason it hasn't paid out before now, I'm told, is that Maglioni and Mark Lessi, the two people who run that organization, are retiring in May, June, and they don't want it on their watch. But, right. but the negotiation in the court case for nearly 18 months now has just been about the figure. And, I mean, FINA will not admit liability, but it will pay a load of money. You know, it's that kind Where's of Where's that money going? When they to do swim. eventually pay it out. So it will go to swimmers. So there's, there's two cases. There's a class action, which uh, Katinka Hosu, Michael Andrew, and Tom Shields are heading, but it's on behalf of all swimmers who, I think behalf of all swimmers generally class action, but formally I think on behalf of everyone who 
was due to take part in an ISL event in in uh, in Turin, certainly in Italy, right. that, that FINA had outlawed. Um, and the second court case is is for the ISL itself. Um, and that that you know they they're getting close to a figure. I have to say, FINA all the way through, as you might expect, has been incredibly obstructive and, uh, um, you know, has has filed a ton of motions about legal procedure and stuff like that. So the the court case has not moved fast. Um, But the conclusion of it is, is, you know, is not in doubt. So what does it mean then? Have we forced change within the Olympic Committee within within FINA as well. Uh, I mean, obviously, in the last kind of two years, we've seen uh, FINA come out and and start to you know put on some events and, and pay the athletes really well. Um, and, and that was kind of a short term change, and, and it was kind of like an, an answer to the ISL, like, well, we're going to hold this meet and we're going to pay the athletes this amount. Of money. All of a sudden, they had incredible amounts of money that they could pay their athletes. Um, yeah, for these spectacular events. Um, you know, is that is that a short-term thing? Do you think that's something that will exist beyond now because of because of well, the that, on this? Well, that was, I mean, that was first of all, that was proof that FINA had been holding on to all this money for all this time. <laughs> no doubt no, no, about that. Yeah, all of a sudden, they had buckets of cash. Right. <laughs> oh, oh, you want to be paid? You know, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, they're kidding themselves if they think that'll do it because, and and the real effect is. What FINA and, by extension, the whole of the IOC, and it's not just FINA that's done this, it's other IOC subsidiaries and other sports as well, like skating and so on. What they, what they will no longer be allowed to do is basically threaten athletes, uh, you know, with being banned from the Olympics or dropped from the squad. Right, right. PT commercial tournament. So um, that has been the main threat that is used over the years. So that, that threat is now illegal in the EU and in the US. You know, basically that covers uh, most of the athletes we're, we're talking about and, and they'll be able to file, you know, motions in any of those jurisdictions. What, what's interesting is, is that perhaps because the Olympics officials have done this for so long and used this threat so habitually, Word seems to have yet to filter down that they can't do that anymore. So in uh, the latest ISL season, which was came way after the judgment that uh, you're not allowed to do this, um, Australia tried to ban all its athletes from going to Hungary. Right. Um, and then sort of sort of tried to do a kerfuffle and said, oh, this is actually about COVID when it clearly wasn't. It was, it was uh, uh, I mean, a lot of us have seen the internal emails there where um, the head of the Australian Federation is just raging about who the hell this guy thinks he is, <laughs> you know, as a monopolist would do. Um, and uh, so, so word seems to be filtering out really slowly that, hello, Olympics, your world has just changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think there's also a generational thing going on. So I think what you know, while that judgment takes a while to be absorbed, I think what will accelerate that is that it's very clear there's a generational change in the Olympic family. There's a hell of a lot of 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds who've been there since God knows when, who were all retiring. Um, 
and, and, and perhaps because they see the writing on the wall in terms of almost every single one of them have got some horrible scandal generally involving Russia and prostitutes. And, and so it's, it's time to get out. And, um, and there's a new generation coming in who, you know, for, uh, Sebastian Coe uh, now leading the, the, the track and field body and being sort of mooted as the new head of the IOC possibly. Well, he's, a, he's very definitely a clean brute. You know, that's his whole point. That's exactly what he did at the IAAF in track. Uh, he inherited an organization that was essentially a money laundering and embezzlement body and turned it into an actual uh, global athletics authority. Um, and, um, you know, if he's being tapped to do the IOC, then, then one would expect him to do the same kind of service there. What do you think the outcome could be then? You, you think that uh, athletes will soon be paid regularly from governing bodies like FINA? You, th you think this could be now a situation where athletes can really make money? It's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure you can say for certain. Constantine, with his sort of, frankly, superior powers of, <laughs> of vision, reckons the Olympics become a a kind of prestigious sideshow, uh, much as they already are for soccer or basketball, um, which you do for honour and country sort of once every four years, but your pay packet and your career is centred around your club. Right. Um, and to be honest, that makes a lot of sense. And, I, and, and, and because it follows an established model with, say, basketball or soccer, then... Um, it doesn't feel that kind of controversial. It feels quite easy to sort of accept. The only person that would, the only people who would have a problem with that, obviously, would be the IOC. But you know, as we've discussed, I think that that bolt is already shot. Um, I I I wonder whether it will be that simple. What would what would considerably um, speed up? that eventual outcome is this is if constant or constantine or someone like him organizes a multi-sport tournament uh so picking the most popular olympic sports so not clay pigeon shooting but probably track probably cycling probably gymnastics swimming and put those together um into a commercial tournament that happens much more regularly um and constantine has plans for that um but as far as I know, um, he hasn't got very far with them um, because simply the battle over swimming turned out to be a lot tougher than he'd imagined. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. And in terms of Constantine's, you know, approach for the future, is is this sustainable for him? Uh, can 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 this take off? Can this be a situation where he's actually now making some money from this project instead of just pouring money into it? Well, I mean, that's, that's the plan. Um, so far, income has been you know, negligible, and it's costing him $25 million every season. Mm -hmm. um, the second season in Bud Budapest, I mean, he's, you know, the other thing about Constantine, he's a ruthless businessman, and he does not do it for free. Um, no. oh. So... Um, there was some controversy over some contractors who weren't being paid. Um, and, 
uh, he was asking his team to do kind of twice the show for 10% less of the money. Um, you know, he really pushes people pretty hard. Um, it has to eventually one day make money. Otherwise, yeah, otherwise he will pull the plug. I, I don't think he's got any set point at which he thinks that will happen. I don't think he needs, he's given it serious consideration because he never would have embarked on this thing unless he thought that at one certain point he'd make money. Right. Um, and, and, and there is a sort of predictable pattern to this in that if you set up something new, a broadcaster won't pay for the first two, three tournaments. Probably only in year five will they start paying full whack. Same goes for sponsors. Sponsors will wait to start paying until there's a regular audience. Um, and that, that obviously is still building with something new as well. So, um, but, it, but it needs to make money. It very definitely needs to make money. And, uh, you know, in our regular conversations with Constantine, whenever I, you know, I, I ask him what are the good things and what are the bad things, number one in the bad things is almost always liquidity, as he says. <laughs> um, there's a, you know, he's a billionaire, so he has options, but uh, I think liquidity in his game is is quite a problem. There, there aren't that many people in the market for a giant Ukrainian infrastructure, oil and gas and ports group. You know, right. it's, <laughs> it's not, you don't pick one of those up on the high street. So, you know, he... Um, I think there's a fair amount of juggling, financial juggling that has to go on. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm slightly amazed by, you know, how kind of even-mindedly he does it. Let me ask you a tough question that I don't know the answer to, honestly. Um, I was part of the LA Current, one of the teams uh, for the first season. I was, I was an assistant coach. Yeah. And I was at the final. We were in the top four, and it was a fantastic event. But Constantine wasn't there to hand out the trophy. Why, why wasn't he in America at the time to be part of the, this great celebration? He may be the only man in the world that's banned from both Russia and America. Um, he, as I said to you earlier, he, he's a pretty kind of equal opportunities provocateur. And uh, while he's definitely out of favor in Moscow and, you know, they've come after him, they've sent the heavies in and they've confiscated, you know, close to a billion dollars from him and stuff like that. In the States, he, so Konstantin was instrumental in Ukraine in, not in organizing a coup, but in funding it. He uh, funded the Orange Revolution, which in the West, which was pro-European, pro-democracy, getting rid of old Stalinist, communist types, um, uh, basically kind of corrupt old men, and um, was a moment of great hope, and which didn't really work out. Um, and within a few years, Constantino sort of disavowed many of those that he funded. Um, the West uh, backed all those guys and continues to back all those guys and so therefore put a black mark against Constantine's name and when he applied for a US visa one year he was refused slightly to his surprise uh, but Ukrainian uh, Ukraine rather is um, it's just one of those issues around which many countries that 
it slightly surprises you, are incredibly sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen from recent American political history, Ukraine just comes up again and again. Yeah. And um, so that's why he can't get a US visa. Uh, mm. it's, I mean, it's a relatively recent thing and it may well change. It may well change with uh, the differences in administration. Um, what might be problematic to that and this is a constant problem for Constantine's managers, is he has a habit of saying stuff uh, that annoys people. Um, you know, for a journalist, that's great. And I think just generally as a human being, I think that's fabulous. And particularly for the world of Olympic sport, which is, has been so full of secrets and lies for so long. But he's not a diplomat. He's a truth teller. And, um, and that annoys some people. Well, listen, man, it's a it's a fascinating story. I was I was engrossed in the article, and I don't usually read articles that are that long. And I just kept going and going, and just kept kept taking me in different places. Is there anything we're missing here? Is there anything else you wanted to add to this story that, that I've maybe just skipped over? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I guess what else is there? I I mean, I, I suppose what really gave me some conviction as well that this was, I mean, this is a story about injustice, a lot of it, right? But what really made that injust injustice obscene for me was talking to the athletes about water and swimming and the beauty of the sport. Um, you know, it's been badly presented for a while swimming, but if you're in the water, um, or if you're, you know, watching from the side, it's such an incredibly beautiful sport. Um, so undersold, so undermarketed for so long. And, but, but also, you know, it's kind of wonderful for um, peace of mind and equanimity. And, and you know, and I, I, I've been reading up on all this sort of fantastic scientific research. Swimming actually makes you smarter. It literally makes your brain bigger. Um, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why swimming is sort of magical and wonderful. Put that, juxtapose that with the awfulness of the way that the sport has been run. And, you know, I'm not just saying these guys are uh, gangsters. You know, a number of them are convicted gangsters. I mean, you know, the guy that ran the Hungarian Federation is on trial for a mob hit where a man was shot 19 times at a traffic light in Budapest. You know, <laughs> and to put those two worlds next to each other, it's just obscene that these guys were running such a beautiful sport for so long. And if Constantine is, is you know, a protagonist and instrumental in getting rid of these guys and cleaning up this wonderful sport and, and, and restoring it, then I think that is a, a really rare and slightly wonderful happy ending. Well, Alex Perry, this has been fascinating conversation. I appreciate your time. Uh, everybody go and read Outside Magazine, The Plot to Kill the Olympics. Thanks again. I'm giving away not one, but two swim nerd pace clocks on the first night of US Olympic trials. Find the link in the show notes to enter.